wanted to take a second before we start to pray, and in our prayers, let's remember Yvonne's father has passed away. Yvonne is still in the midst of grieving her dad, her family, um, and uh, Adair, is Adair here? Adair and Jared, where are they? Um, Adair has a, uh, Adair, if you can hear me, we're we're, uh, we're going to pray for her friend, Cherie. Adair was able to pray for her friend, Cherie, at work, who I don't believe knows the Lord, but has malignant cancer, lymphoma, um, and has surgery on her cancer this Tuesday at 1 o'clock. So we're going to pray for that and ask the Lord to bless her in her surgery and also bless Adair's ability to witness to her going forward. So let's go ahead and, and do that right now. Adair, we're going to pray for Cherie. <laughs> Lord, we pray for Yvonne. We pray for her and her family as they grieve the loss of their father. We pray, God, for, for them to honor you and glorify you in their grief by resting in you and running to you. And we pray, God, for you to be glorified in it. And we pray that, Lord, Yvonne's family would be made aware through the passing of their beloved father again and again, Lord, that you are the only thing that matters, that this life is a gift, but it's also a vapor. And that they may be, Lord, driven deeper into the worship of you and the giving of their lives to you for your glory and for their good and for the salvation of others around them. Lord, we pray for Cherie. Thank you for Adair's love and her, the natural gifts and the spiritual gifts you've given her to love on people. And we pray, God, for that to be able to continue with Cherie. And we pray, God, for her surgery on Tuesday, that you would meet her in it, you would do all that you want to do in it, and that she would know you are at work by your Holy Spirit's presence, Lord, that she would cry out to you and be uh, sensed that she would sense you in her cry, that she would call out to you in the day of trouble and recognize your nearness, God. And Adair, please remind me, does Cherie know the Lord? She does. So Lord, we pray for what she's going through to be a, a strengthener for her growth in you and also a, a witness, Lord, through her hardship to those around you who need you. She would glorify you in it. And now, Lord, I pray for your Holy Spirit to anoint the preaching of your words, Lord, to our hearts and to our minds. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, who brings so much weakness and um, mediocre uh, faithfulness to you in terms of what you deserve, uh, Lord. And uh, Lord, I bring, as Luther said, the only thing we bring to salvation is uh, the sin which you so graciously forgive. And so I, I feel that way even in preparation, Lord. I, I know that, Lord, in myself I can do nothing and bring nothing, but you do so much, Lord. To, to pour your grace and your mercy upon your people and to be patient and enduring and steadfast with them. So I'm looking forward to you doing that again today with me and with everyone hearing this, Lord, word. Please anoint these glorious words from our Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray, amen. We have spent uh, the last four weeks looking closely at the prophecies of Jesus coming Prophecies that included both his first coming and many of those prophecies include aspects of his second coming. So if you, if you haven't listened to that, this is, this is part of the, the theme of Advent. But today we're going to focus on the theme of the second Advent. That is his second coming. And now I know this topic can be one of great interest. Jesus coming back. And I know it can be one of great disagreement. 
And towards the end, I might offer some of my own thoughts of more debatable questions, depending how this morning goes and feedback I hear from you. We might even do a second message on this. I, I don't know right now. Um, but, but today, I really want to focus on what is generally agreed on across all of church history by all Christians. And, and I hope that you'll see that regardless of your particular persuasion of timing and sequence, if you're thinking about, if, you're, if you think about eschatology, which means eschatos, which means last things, you're gonna see that regardless of whether you're, you know, you might be familiar with these terms or not, you're pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, ah-mill, pre-mill, post-mill, regardless of those things, I, I wanna focus on what's generally agreed on across all Christian history because regardless of where you are in all those things, I think you're gonna see that in Jesus' heart and mind, the application is the same. The application for us in response to his coming, however he does it, is the same. And so I hope by the end we'll, we'll see that. Now to get into what the Bible says about Jesus' coming, and it's, there's tons of, of this across the scriptures. And, I, and you know, it's funny, I, I don't mean to speak pejoratively of those terms, post, pre, mid, amil, pre-mil, post-mil. This is, a, this is worthy of study. You know, 25, at least 20%, at least 20%, at least a fifth of your Bible is clear predictive prophecy. That's not even counting those things in the Bible that are topological, like the, the temple is, is really a type of Christ. The, the Garden of Eden has aspects of it that relate to who God is and what he wants to do at the back of the Bible as well as the front of the Bible. Everything in scriptures in some ways points to Jesus Christ. But Actual predictive prophecy makes up a fifth of your whole Bible. So it's, it's really worth studying and considering and wondering about these things. Um, but in looking at all that, it can be really easy for us to get caught up in things like the time, the sequence, so much so that we miss the real weight and the real gravity of what's involved in talking about end times things, which is our hearts. And, and I think you're gonna see that hopefully through the Lord's own words today. So we're going to take a big swath of Matthew 24 and 25, particularly 25, because uh, it, it, as I understand, I don't know where Jesus spends more time talking in, in one place, concentrated, talking about his return and the consequences than Matthew 24 at the end of it, Matthew 25, all of it, Matthew 26, all of it. It's a great place to go to, to think about what does Jesus think about his return. We're gonna pick things up at the end of Matthew 24, and there we're gonna find Jesus. After three years or so of preaching and pleading and doing miracles, he will dramatically and explicitly end his own public, personal ministry to Israel. This is the end of Jesus' first coming for Israel. And he, he ends this ministry by severely condemning the religious leaders for their hypocrisy. And if you look at Matthew 24, most of it is some of the most painful, dreadfully fearful, sad, angry words coming from the mouth of God towards the religious leaders. And you might be familiar with the woes that Jesus brings upon the Pharisees and the, and the teachers of the law. Woe to you, woe to you. It's where he says you, you are whitewashed tombs, outside looking clean, but inside full of dead men's bones. 
You travel a thousand miles to win a single convert. And when you do, you make him twice the son of hell that you are. You load up men's shoulders with burdens so heavy they cannot enter the kingdom of heaven and nor do you lift a finger to help them. How will you escape the fires of hell? And he says that all the guilt for all the bloodshed over hundreds of years of Israel's uh, rejection of God and killing all the prophets will come upon that generation as he's speaking to those religious leaders. It's, it's powerful, dramatic, it's exhilarating to read, and it's, if we're reading it right, it's, it should make us fear the Lord. But he does that, and at the end of that, if he's saying, you've come and you've rejected me, I've come and you've rejected me, and look at you, look at who you are, look at who you are. He then says to them that their time with him, their chance to honor him as Messiah and receive him as Messiah is over. And he says this with grief and grave warning. After all the woes, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. Behold, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you learn to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's it. He's done. By God's grace, he won't be done through his disciples, but his personal public ministry to Israel as a people, particularly through her religious leaders, is over. Your house is left to you desolate. And Jesus comes out from the temple. And this is where Matthew 24 begins after this terrible split and terrible judgment. He comes out from the temple. He's going away and his disciples come up to him to point the temple buildings to him. You know, I wonder what they were saying. Jesus, how can you say your house is left desolate? This is the place to, to teach. Look at these buildings. I don't know exactly what was going on in their hearts, but it says they pointed out the temple to him and he says to them, do you not see all these things? And we should have this slide. It should be our first slide of scripture. He says, do you not see all these things? First paragraph midway through. Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. So Jesus is expanding on what he's just said. This is how you will know your house is going to be left to you desolate. This whole temple structure is going to be destroyed. Not one stone will be left on another. And then Matthew says, he was sitting on the Mount of Olives. The disciples are probably shocked and they come to him privately and, and, and they say to him, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? It's natural, right? Think about you walking along in Frederick with Jesus and he says, do you see this city? Everything is going to be destroyed. Nothing will be left here. I mean, wouldn't you want to know, so when then? <laughs> Like, when should I sell my house? When should I get my kids in the car and get out of here? When, when are we talking about? But they want to know something more specific. They say, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So notice here at the beginning, something important. The disciples, they have one question, really. But it comes out in kind of three components. When will these things happen? That is, the temple being destroyed. 
And what will be the sign of your coming? What will be the signs of the end, of the end of the age? So it's very likely in their minds, these three components are all the same thing to them in timing. And in terms of God judging and bringing his, his final judgment, there is, there is something of one thing going on here. The end of the age in Matthew is used five times. It always refers to the final judgment and the finishing up of God's dealing with sinful humanity, establishing everlasting righteousness. And for the disciples who were Jews, they'd be thinking of all these things in, in a Jewish-centric way. They're not thinking of the world or the Gentiles. They're thinking of Israel as God's focus. What's God, whatever God does to the temple, he's doing to, to humanity. So whatever he does with Israel, that's where God's concern is in their minds. So if you're going to destroy Israel, you're really judging the world. And, and they remember Daniel, very likely. Daniel had prophesied that after the Messiah is cut off, remember we saw this 500 years plus earlier, Daniel had prophesied that after the Messiah comes, what's going to happen? Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed, right? Daniel prophesied that in 536 B.C., before the temple and the city had even been rebuilt. Remember, he says the Messiah will be cut off. He gives the actual years until the Messiah comes. He's cut off, then the temple and the city are destroyed again. So they've got that all in their minds probably, and certainly Jesus does as we'll see. But what I want us to consider here is that in Jesus' response, we see something different in his response. He's not necessarily thinking of these things as all one thing that's all gonna happen. You can see hints and nuances, even though Jesus himself, as we'll see, doesn't even know the timing of his own return. We see in his response a, a hold on here, listen, this is complex. It's not exactly what you think. So Jesus is going to answer their question about the end, destruction of Jerusalem and his recovery. He's going to answer them in three points. He's going to give them a picture of the world from his departure until his return. Part of his answer is going to be a picture of the world from his departure until his return. Part of his answer is going to be a specific prediction of judgment on Jerusalem, which he has just told them about. And part of his answer is going to be what's it going to be like at, his, at, at the very time of his coming. So as you think about everything Jesus is going to say now, I want you to kind of think of three cubbies. Okay? One cubby is what's the world going to be like between now when you leave and when you're coming back? There's another cubby. This thing you said about the temple being destroyed, what's that going to be like? And there's another cubby. <laughs> what will it be like at the actual time of your coming? I think if we think in terms of those three things, we're going to see that pretty much everything Jesus says will fit in one of those three cubbies. It'll help us understand how their thinking and how Jesus' thinking comes together here in his answer. So Jesus answers and says to them in his response, and this is where he begins with that first cubby. So let's go he, forward one slide. He says, see this is the first cubby, the world from his departure to until his return. This is what I believe Jesus is explaining. Now I, I, should, I should condition this, that there are people who disagree with me here. Um, but most people agree kind of with, with what I'm gonna say. But there, there are differences. But um, I'm not bringing you something that's just my own ideas though. Although I do feel like God has walked me through these texts very specifically and very graciously in, in my struggles with doubt and what does this mean, what does this mean? I, I really felt like I've met the Lord, but I, by God's grace, I've also studied and I've actually corresponded with D.A. Carson. I wrote him a letter and he wrote me back about this stuff. Isn't that amazing? I'm so amazing. I'm not amazing. But, but I, I, I've, I've, I've toiled to some degree over these texts. So um, anyway, 
So here's the first cubby, the world from his departure until his return. And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. They will deliver you to tribulation. We don't get out of tribulation. (laughs) We might get out of parts of it depending on where you are, but plenty of Christians for 2,000 years have been tortured, murdered. (laughs) They will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away, will betray one another, and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because of lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. That's a panorama of the last 2,000 years, brothers and sisters. You see that? This is merely the beginning, Jesus says. Nation, war against nation. So, so he starts with this warning, though. Don't, don't miss this in our thirst for, like, when's he coming, when's he coming? He, he says, his, what's really on his heart here, I feel like, as much as anything is to the disciples is don't fall away from me and pursue false messiahs. Don't get drawn into proclamations of here's the one who can keep us secure. Here's the savior. No, no, that's not how it's gonna be. So Jesus' first concern here is not with timing and explanation of timing, but with their falling away from him and following false messiahs and false teachers and false prophets and false teaching. And he says, but much more is going to have to take place before the end. Wars, disasters, your persecution, the spread of the gospel to the whole world. And he says, that is not yet the end. So within this general picture, there's a sense though, however, if you listen carefully, to acceleration. Did you pick this up? He says these are birth pangs. Well, what are birth pangs? Many of you know what birth pangs are. I don't know. I've only heard them and seen them on my wife's face. They're awful. But what I know is that they start early in the time of her delivery, but they grow harder, and they grow worse, and worse and worse as the time comes up, right? So the war of 72 AD and the war of, you know, well, we'll get to the war of 70 AD. That's very very different, but if we think of Europe, we think about the wars over the last thousand years. What do we see? We see some bad wars in the 1400s, right? But nothing compares to the wars in the 20th century, right? And so it, we, what, we, what we realize is in the last century, more Christians have been murdered and martyred for their faith than in the whole 19th centuries before that. 
combined. If you put all the Christians that were killed in the first 19 centuries, compare it to the 20th century, we don't think of persecutions getting worse, but in the actual record, more people have died for Christ in the last 100 years than died in the last previous 2,000 years. So Jesus says this too. He says, the love of most will grow cold because lawlessness or sinfulness will increase. Most people are gonna keep sinning and there's an increasing coldness and and a lack of love. So there is an acceleration, even though there's, there's a picture of a general, this is what the world's gonna be like, but there's also these intimations, birth pangs and coldness increasing of things getting worse and worse. Now within that big picture, there are these great moments of, of awakening, right? Over the last 2,000 years, the Reformation or the Great Awakening or the beginning of the church. And so he says the gospel's gonna go into the world. It is going to be received. And then we have these other pockets like, you know, if we think about America, why did America start? Well, it's been a nice 200 years for religious freedom in America, hasn't it? But why did America start? In large part, America started because there wasn't religious freedom going on in England, right? It was awful in England. (laughs) Hard to believe. People killed for having Bibles in Europe and wanting to read their Bibles, So they came to America to escape that. And we've had a sweet spell. And we're all nervous, right, that it's starting to shift and we read about Chick-fil-A and, (laughs) you know, and and schools kicking out Bible clubs and these things. I think it's real. I think you can sense a coldness increasing and a much more militant hostility towards Christianity. But I I guess what I'm trying to say is don't just take the last 200 years of American religious freedom and say, oh, that's the way it's been for 2,000 years. Folks, it has not been like that for 2,000 years. It's been more like either dead like it is in France or militantly hostile like it is in Saudi Arabia or China or Russia, which flirts with, with freedom in Christianity and then reverts back to, well, I, I don't want to get too down a rapid trail. Jesus has said his words. I'll, I'll, I'll let you think about them historically. But let's move on to number two. Jesus now brings them into the specific answer he wants to give about Jerusalem. Because he's just told them that. That's what piqued their interest. When are all these things going to happen to our city, to this temple? So now he, he, he steps back from the, he, he zooms in now. Within this big panoply of general history, he zooms into the one thing he has really specifically told them about, which is the destruction of the temple. So he says in verse 15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, that is probably, uh, almost certainly Matthew's um, editorial comment there, let the reader understand. So Matthew's saying, pay attention to Daniel, go reference Daniel. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. It is gonna be really bad, get out. When you see this thing, this abomination of desolation, whoever is in the field must not turn back and get his cloak. Verse 19, woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Let me tell you really quick what we know about this paragraph. What we know for sure is that Jesus is talking about Jerusalem. Many people miss this. They say, oh, this is the whole world. This is the tribulation. Jesus says, 15, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. 
He's talking about what he just said, which is this temple is going to be destroyed. And he's giving him the 411 on that specific event. And he's saying, when you see things start to get bad, get out. It is coming. Don't wait for anything. Run to the hills outside. Where? Outside Jerusalem. So he's not talking about Iraq and Iran and President Trump. And, you know, he, he's, he's talking about Jerusalem. And I'm not saying that big stuff isn't going to go down with the rest of the world because it is. But that's not what he's talking about here. Now, we need to talk about this phrase, the abomination of desolation. Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation, abomination refers to any major covenant violation. You know, we, we think of homosexuality as an abomination or adultery as an abomination. It's a major covenant violation. But it's especially used about idolatry towards Yahweh in the Old Testament. And this phrase, abomination of desolation, comes from the prophet Daniel in four places. He uses this phrase or something like this phrase, abomination that causes desolation. Every time we read it in Daniel, it's about some intrusion of an unholy thing or person or army or, or sa- sacrifice upon a holy, in a holy place. In Daniel 8 and 11, for instance, it's very clear to me and to most people that I know that it refers to what Daniel predicted and saw through a miraculous gift of of prophetic vision, what would happen in 168 BC, 168 years before Jesus was born, when this horrible bloodthirsty man named Antiochus Epiphanes, who I believe is a type of the Antichrist who will come in the final days, he comes, he's kind of from Macedonia, which is near Greece, he invades Jerusalem, he outlaws Judaism, he outlaws practicing being a Jewish person, and he murders multitudes of Jews. I mean, it was just horrible, bloody awfulness. And he murders everyone who will not follow his pagan religious practices. He orders the Jews to worship Zeus and he takes a pig and he goes into the temple and he slaughters it on the altar. That's an abomination of desolation. And he des- then he destroyed uh, much of the city. Daniel uses the idea again in Daniel 9 when he cites another phrase, another time he uses the abomination that makes desolate he, he uses it there when he's talking about what happens after the Messiah is cut off in Daniel 9, 27, 28. That's where he talks about this happening again. So Jesus here is almost certainly not citing what happened in 168 BC. He's citing a future abomination of desolation that's going to be concurrent with the destruction of the temple. So he warns of this abomination that brings desolation. Remember what happened in Antiochus Epiphanes? Daniel told us about one then, so Jesus is giving him a frame of reference. The same type of thing is going to happen again when this temple is destroyed and you're to flee the city when you see that happening. Now in 70 AD, less than 40 years or so after Jesus uttered these words, probably less than 40 years, the Romans surround the city and they bring an unholy thing They bring their standard bearers with the Roman eagle and the soldiers would pay homage to it as if worshiping. They bring it right around Jerusalem. They surround Jerusalem. And soon the city is slaughtered. Josephus, the historian, says in that city over a million people were slaughtered in 70 AD. A million people slaughtered in the siege of 70 AD. So Jesus says the destruction of Jerusalem will be unparalleled, but unparalleled in its own history, I believe, because we're talking about Jerusalem. Sure enough, Jerusalem was set upon in 70 AD so horribly that starvation, 
disease, and cannibalism between mothers and children are recorded. Josephus reports over a million people are slaughtered by the Romans. One report states that so many bodies piled up inside Jerusalem that they started stacking, stacking the bodies up as high as the horse's bridle. Both sides of the roads going into Jerusalem. And when the roads filled up, they started to fill them outside the city because there wasn't enough room. And again, Rome eventually goes into the Holy of Holies, destroys the temple completely. And as Jesus said, came to pass, not one stone was left upon another that wasn't turned down. For the sake of the elect, Jesus says, this time is cut short. And I believe he's talking about the elect who are still kept for God in future generations. Now some of those elect may be the people who came to Christ following that destruction who escaped. But I believe that has reference for, um, for this, this idea. I won't go into today too much. I'm showing my hand a little bit that there is a, there is a, f- a final end time gathering and, and a, uh, a, a, what Paul calls a re- um, what does he call? He's talking about the root and the branches. The, the, the original branch of Judaism, the, the Jewish people are, are re-put into the root of Jesus Christ. He's talking about an end times uh, revival among the Jewish people that's going to happen. I believe that's going to happen in a dramatic way. I think it's happened over 2,000 years. Jews have come in, but I think there's going to be a major return. So does John Piper. So does, you know, I, I'm always sensitive to like, that sounds like crazy. You know, this guy talked, this guy talked. I just want you to know that some of your favorite preachers and teachers believe these things. John Piper believes it. I believe Charles Spurgeon does. I believe Jonathan Edwards taught it. I believe John Calvin taught it. Um, the sequences are different, but, but you read a lot of scripture and you see that it's very difficult to not see that, I, I believe. But it, it's okay if you don't believe it, it's fine. Don't, um, don't, um, we're not gonna break bread or break fellowship over it. Absolutely um, not. So anyway, Jesus comes back now. But l- look what Jesus does after he talks about Jerusalem. He comes back he zooms back out a little bit and he warns them about false Christs again. It's like Jesus, Jerusalem was destroyed because they rejected the true Messiah. They willingly embraced false saviors. And so he says, 23, he comes back around and makes this, this bigger sandwich of, look, don't follow false Christs. Don't lose me. For if anyone says to you, behold, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, behold, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, he's in the inner rooms. Do not believe them. Don't go to Masada, outside the city, for their Quranic Messiah. Then he says in verse 27, for just as the lightning comes from the east, and flashes even to the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus' return will not be like his first coming. His first advent was in mystery and hiddenness and humility. If you follow the prophecies, you might have understood what was going on. But it was hard to get, right? That's not going to be like it this time. Jesus is not coming in humility. He's coming in glory. It will be like lightning that shines everywhere, he says. And even if you're looking over here and the lightning strikes over there, it lights up everywhere around you. So you see it no matter what direction you're looking at. You can't help but see the flash. So don't be deceived. And then verse 28, look at this. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. 
I've struggled for a long time to understand what this means, and so have a lot of the writers I've read. I, I wonder if maybe God has given me some insight as I study this this time. As I've thought about his, his proclamation, many will fall away. Many are going to go after false messiahs. Many are going to go after false teaching. So I think what Jesus is saying is here is, is <laughs> don't be deceived, verse 25, but wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. In other words, for those who are ready for deception, for those who are ready to be taken away into false messiahs and false teachings and false religions, believe me, the vultures will gather. There will be a rich supply of deception for anyone who wants to be deceived and doesn't want to know the truth. These are stark warnings. So finally, the Lord deals with the back half of their question now as we close the Lord's words about the future. His coming into the end of the age so our third cubby, what will happen at his second coming? Next slide. What will happen at his second coming? But immediately, after the tribulation of those days, after the, the, we we're finished with the big overall cubby of, of the world history, when God's done, you know, and by the way, an interpolation here, like an interruption, Luke has his own version or explanation of this story. He records things that Matthew doesn't record in this conversation with Jesus and vice versa. One of the things Luke says is that Jerusalem, he says, Luke says that after the attack and the destruction of Jerusalem, he says Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles. And then he says this extremely sobering thing for any of us who know what happened in 1947 and 1967 when Jerusalem was retaken by the Jews. He says, Jesus says, Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is complete. And again, I'm showing my card a little bit, but, um, but here's what he says. After the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. So again, Jesus is, is zooming out from Jerusalem and he's, when he says immediately after the tribulation of those days, I don't think he means specifically what happened in Jerusalem, but the whole, all the days I've been talking about, the tribulation I talked about, the first part, obviously the tribulation that Jer Jerusalem is gonna go through, he's saying, listen, after all this age of wars and nation against nation and natural disasters and increasing lawlessness, these birth pangs that get worse and worse and worse and false Christs and in the midst of that, the gospel going into all the world, even as it's persecuted, this time of the Gentiles maybe that Luke refers to, after all of that, he says, after all of that, God is done <laughs> and I am coming. I'm not gonna let all that happen and then hang out for another you know, couple of centuries. No, when God's finished with that program, he says, immediately, I'm coming back. And now he's explaining here, what we just read is the, the event of his coming. And, and why, no one will need to point out the Messiah's in the inner room or he's out in the hills. So it's, and I, I wanna pause here and stress this. It's really important for us, as we're gonna read the rest of this, for us to see that what Jesus is describing right here, it's not wars and not persecution, not signs and Iran invading Iraq and you know, all these different things that might or might not happen and Russia invading Syria. It, it's important for us to see that he's not describing any of that stuff anymore. He's not describing the gospel mission and not famine. He is right now describing his coming. This is what will happen. This is my coming. See, these are not signs of his coming. This is the event. He's using Old Testament end times language. In the past, it would have symbolic tie-ins. We talk about stars falling from the sky. 
sun and moon. We're talking about foundational things being shaken. And that in the Old Testament is often symbolically connected with nations being upended and governments being disordered. And while in the past that language has been more metaphorical, I believe it's metaphorical there because it's going to be part of the major thing that's going to happen. I believe Jesus is pointing to an ultimate and real fulfillment of real cosmic event that will be worldwide and supernatural. And that's why you don't need to look in the inner room or go out to the hills to find him. It's going to be cosmological phenomena. And here's how the whole world responds to this coming. All the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And this is the literal, again, the literal meaning of the lightning idea. Jesus appearing will be a cataclysmic world event seen by everyone. And whether that will be because God miraculously makes everyone see it at once somehow, or because technology will be, will be such, and this isn't hard for us to imagine, that the kind of Twitter feeds we'll have then, the kind of 24-hour cable news or Google satellite or what might even be in our contact lenses, I don't know, but, but everyone will be able to see it. I mean, it's not too hard right now to imagine some heavy thing happening in, in Iraq now, right? And we can see it in a few minutes. We see the footage on the news. We pull it up on our phone. I, I have no idea if it's gonna be like that or it's just gonna be like, you know, I, I believe Jesus, it says in Zechariah, his feet will touch upon the Mount of Olives. I don't think when Jesus returns physically, the angel said, uh, no, the angel said in Acts 1, he said, this Jesus who goes up from you is coming back to you just like he left. There's a physical return of Jesus. When he comes back, sadly, I don't believe he's gonna come back to Buffalo, New York <laughs> or Cleveland. You know, I, I, I do think Jesus is coming back to the Mount of Olives, like he said. Um, so, it's one person coming back, right? It's not like five million Jesus is coming back all over the world. So how do we see the one person coming back where he comes back physically? I think it's, it's either God just paints the sky with it or we do see it in some way technologically, I don't know. But verse 31, he will send his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. And now Jesus brings some application to his words. Verse 32, and it's, it's almost the exact opposite, this application of what I used to think it was. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branches are already become tender and put forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Now please follow me carefully here. Jesus says, when you see all these things, in other words, when you see everything I have told you about in these first two cubbies, <laughs> wars, famines, earthquakes, lawlessness, gospel going to the ends of the earth, and specifically for these guys, Jerusalem's destruction, then recognize that I am right at the door. And then verse 34, truly I say to you, this generation, you guys listening to me right here, will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So this is, this is tricky, but it's clear. If you, if you just think and don't run too far ahead, Jesus promises that all these things will happen before the generation of his listeners, these apostles, die. And indeed, within the generation of the disciples, by 70 AD, all these things were happening. Wars continued, 
natural disasters, persecution, false messiahs. It's all recorded in history. It was all going on in those 70 years. The rapid spread, the miraculous and rapid spread of the gospel, which Paul would say is spreading to the ends of the earth, the whole world, he would call it. It was the known world then to Paul and, of course, the destruction of Jerusalem. So Jesus is saying, it will not be long. It will be in your generation that you see all these signs that I am right at the door fulfilled. And then watch what he says in verse 36. But of that day, an hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came. And took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. There will be two men in the field. One will be taken. One will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken. One will be left. And I don't know if one's the rapture or one's judgment. But, but the fact Jesus isn't trying to get into that point here. He's trying to say it's going to be very unexpected. Most people are not going to be ready for this. And so what I mean is when he says, know that he's near, he's at the door, I used to think it meant like, watch for the signs, watch for the signs, figure it out. Figure it. It, it doesn't mean that. It means be ready for me. B- because everything Jesus is now gonna say, mid against the idea that we can put dates and calendars and maps together and know it's about to happen. Listen to what he says. He doesn't say that at all. He says, be on the alert. Next slide. Therefore, be on the alert. For you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if indeed the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. (laughs) So why would Jesus say, watch for these signs so you can put it together and then say he's not coming when you, no, 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 no. When he says he's right at the door, all these things that need to happen before I come back are gonna happen even in your generation, he's saying, buddy, I'm ready to come at any point. Even you, Peter, even you, John, even you, Paul, I could come back at any point after Jerusalem destroyed in 70 AD, which I'm predicting. There's, there's nothing else that crucially has to happen before I could come back very soon. So I believe what Jesus is saying, he says to us today, that he could come back at any moment. Now, now I believe there are some there are some other things to say about the end times, about things that happen. The Antichrist, the man of lawlessness. The, Paul talks about these things. You know, we, we, but but, but I, I, I think Jesus is being very clear to us here that that kind of stuff could be very hidden from us until it's too late if we're not careful. How many Antichrists could have been the last Antichrist? Right, John said many Antichrists are in the world. He wrote that in like, I don't know, 70 AD. But how many Napoleons and Hitlers and Maos and Stalins and King Richards, you know, and despots and tyrants do we have to go through before one of them finally becomes the last one? And, and I think, I mean, if I was alive in 1941 and I saw what Hitler was doing with marks on the arms of people and numbers on their sides, and I would have thought, this is it. We're done, you know? But if I was in Russia... A couple of years later, I saw Stalin sending all my family out to Siberia and shutting down all the churches. And I, I mean, I, I just think Jesus is saying, it's gonna come when you don't think it will. <laughs> so be ready. And that's his application more than anything else is be alert. Don't fixate on watching the skies. 
fixate on watching your lives. We'll see that next. Be faithful and sensible slaves. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master puts in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is the slave whom his master finds doing so when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with his drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour which he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Harder words by Jesus may never have been said, but they're very much in keeping. I, I, I don't believe it's too hard to believe that Jesus had the Pharisees and the teachers of the law on his mind. He has just gotten done with them, burning them with his words. And I think he's seeing their future here. But it's warning for us. He's talking to his disciples. Don't be like those Pharisees to my people. Don't dry up widows' treasuries and pray for show and keep people out of heaven with your false teaching. So, so here is this tension. He could come at any time. But he will come in such a way that if we look at this passage, he could, to, here's the tension. This is, this is really here. This is, <laughs> I'm sorry because I'm realizing like I know what point I'm trying to make. I'm just not speaking slow enough to make it. Here's the tension. He could come at any time. And he will come in such a way that we can all say in our hearts, he is taking a long time. Do you see that? It's right here. It's right here. My master is not coming for a long time. <laughs> Why would he say that? Because it's taking a long time. So Jesus says, <laughs> in fact, if we read Peter, Peter says people are going to mock. It's going to take so long that people are going to say, where's this coming you all spoke of? This is in Peter's letter. Things happen just like they always did. Peter almost like gives a, 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 gives a, a philosophical metaphor for Evolution. I mean, he just says, things are happening just as they always did from the beginning of time. Where's this coming? There's no coming. Peter says the people will mock. They don't understand that with the Lord, a thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. God isn't being slow. He's giving people time to repent and be saved. So Jesus says, be faithful and sensible. Be faithful and be found faithful and sensible. That's what he says. That's your job. It's not to put timetables together. I'm not saying don't look for certain things or don't wonder or question. I think it's very fair and sensible to wonder and do that. God's given us so much in his word to ask about. But the heart of it is not timetables. The heart of it is be ready. Be faithful and sensible. And I love that command. Who is the faithful and sensible servant? There's so much sanity there. I mean, it's like, for, for me, it's like, don't be found in emotional extremities of strange religious fervor. <laughs> right? He's saying be faithful and sensible. Like poor Bill Belichick would say to his team for years, do your job. <laughs> that was their motto in the locker room. Do your job. They won six Super Bowls. Maybe with some cheating, I don't know. But they won six Super Bowls on that. Whoa, whoa. Okay, I'm sorry. Well, the... Chickens have come home to roost, right, last night? But 
last two game enders are six picks. But, but, but listen to that. Be faithful and sensible. There's so much freedom and sanity in that. We, we, yes, we do this reverently with fear and trembling because there will be an accounting that will reveal the truth of our profession. We live sensibly and faithfully. It doesn't mean that we don't take risks. It means that the risks we take are actually sensible risks <laughs> in light of the fact that Jesus is who I belong to. Jesus is coming back to ask me to give an account of my life. And in light of that, maybe going to China or maybe staying to be an elder at your church <laughs> if that's a risk to you. I, I, I'm just saying, I'm talking to Jim over there in the corner. Be found faithful and sensible, Jesus says, caring for what God has put in front of you. And th there's a letter that, uh, there's, there's a, there's an article that I, I just am so grateful that God put this in my heart and now I need to find it, but I, I am so tempted to, I'm gonna send this to you, but I, I need to read some of it to you. This is under the theme of be sensible and faithful. If, if you are in Christ, this is Scott Hubbard, he's writing in uh, Desiring God. God has placed in your heart a hunger for holiness. Holiness is no longer the cramped closet you thought it was, but rather a garden of pleasure an echo from heaven, the beauty of Eden rediscovered. You have a taste for holiness. You're, you're not content merely to be counted religious in Christ. You, you yearn to become righteous like Christ. You, you want to be holy as he's holy. But how does holiness happen? How do stumbling, distracted prayers, prayers begin to pray without ceasing? How do worriers learn to roll even their biggest cares onto God? How does pride turn into poverty of spirit how does laziness turn into zeal for righteousness? How does stinginess to an open hand, restlessness to relentless calm? How do we come not only to say, but to feel deep down that Jesus Christ is the sum of all that's good in life, that to know him is to live and to die is our greatest gain? God teaches us how holiness happens all over his word, and yet we often overlook one prevalent lesson. Very often, Holiness hides in small things. Be found as the faithful, sensible servant. Holiness is found in small things. In the pursuit of holiness, many of us fall into the fool's error. The discerning sets his face toward wisdom, but the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. The fool can peer into the distance with marvelous perception and trip over a rock at his feet. We too can become so interested in the grand steps of obedience we hope to take in the future that we miss the, quote, offensively ordinary steps right in front of us. A single man may dream of sacrificing himself for a wife and children one day, and yet fail to do his chores in the meantime. An aspiring missionary may pray to one day plant a church among the unreached and yet neglect her present small group at her own church. A postgrad may aspire to one day start a nonprofit, and yet he cuts corners in his job as a cashier. A young Christian may long to remain steadfast under future trials and yet grumble at her roommate's dirty dishes. In each case, tomorrow's obedience has become the enemy of today's obedience. 
The alternative, Solomon tells us, is to become like the discerning who set his face toward wisdom. And setting our faces towards wisdom will mean, in the first place, setting our faces towards today. Today's responsibilities, today's burdens, today's conversations, today's means of grace, like prayer and the word and fellowship with one another and being faithful to your local church. Trifling though that may seem, the wise know that a Christian becomes holy much like a cathedral becomes tall, one stone at a time. And stones are offensively ordinary things. The pursuit of holiness then is both easier and harder than many of us imagine. It's easier because our growth and grace often happens gradually, one small step at a time. It's harder because sanctification has now invaded all of life. It's invaded offensively ordinary tasks, and those tasks are all around us. Paul tells the Colossians, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Do everything. Our spiritual maturity rests in those words, whatever you do, and everything. Obey God not only in the seen, but in the unseen. Not only in the exceptional, but in the mundane. Not only in the crisis moments of life, but in the seemingly casual moments strewn throughout our days. The question we must ask dozens of times every day is not what God might have us do 10 years from now, but rather, will I obey God now? In this moment, will I stop the fantasy right as it starts? Will I pray instead of waking up and checking my phone? Will I refuse my eyes a second glance at that beautiful woman? Will I speak the loving, uncomfortable word in a kind way? If that thought intimidates us, it should also cheer us. The Lord Jesus does hold us accountable moment and moment, for every moment. There's no such thing as me time when you belong to Jesus. But he also stands ready at every moment to notice our faltering attempts at obedience. And wonder of wonders, to be pleased, Jesus will not miss the smallest deed done in his name, not even a cup of cold water given to a child. You will not lose your reward. But he will make note of it and prepare a fitting reward for whatever good, whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. And for whatever defects remain in our obedience, he has grace enough to cover them. Where does this pursuit of holiness begin? It begins right where we are. Begin where you are, says C.S. Lewis. By summoning up whatever we believe about the goodness and grace of God, by thinking about creation and redemption, and all the blessings of this life, consider beginning at the smallest place, right where you are. Thank him for the tree outside your house, the breakfast you just enjoyed, the child in the next room. C.S. Lewis writes, we shall not be able to adore God on the highest occasions if we have learned no habit of doing so on the lowest occasions. Jesus, of course, said, whoever is faithful in little will be faithful in much. He didn't turn it around, you know? I mean, and this just... This is just a beautiful, beautiful article. I'm going to send this out to the church. I sent this to many of my young men friends in this church months ago. This time you better read it. (laughs) 
And so we aim for faithful and sensible lives. This dramatic cataclysm that's coming upon the earth, the return of Christ and his judgment of all things, judging people to hell by God's grace, multitudes beyond counting, saved for heaven. Our response to that, our obedience to that coming cataclysm is to live faithful, sensible lives right now. Be the best school teacher you can be. And seems like you are. <laughs> Show up for band practice. Come to your care group. Pray for your care group leader, Kevin Sandell. Show up to church. Go to Bible study. Pray for one another. Love one another. Give your tithes or however you feel like God can lead you. Do your job. Be faithful at work. Apologize to your wife. Again. And then again. And then apologize to her a third time. <laughs> but keep apologizing to her. I just love that Jesus doesn't ask me. You know, <laughs> he's kind. He's humble. He's gentle. Even, even in the context of this sermon today, his mightiness, his glory, his blinding brightness, he's not trying to make it too hard for us. Faithfulness. Being sensible. Let's pray. Lord, you are coming, and we don't know when. God, I want to thank you with all my heart for so many words you gave us about your first coming. You told us who you would descend from. You told us what you would be like, a suffering servant. You told us how you would die, pierced through for our sins. You told us where you would be born in Bethlehem. You told us why you would do all this to justify the many. You told us you'd be buried with a rich man. You told us your clothes would be gambled over by your mockers. You told us you would rise. You told us when you would come. 483 years after the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, the Messiah will come and be cut off and then the temple and the city will be destroyed. You told us all these things, and then you came and you gave us your glorious revelation of your Father. <clears throat> In all your words, you have made God known to us so that we can say, as Holly said today, who do we say you are? We say you are the Christ. We say you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you are with us in this room right now through your Holy Spirit. And you are coming again in person, even as you live with us in spirit. This world belongs to you, a holy Jesus. You are waiting until your Father makes all your enemies a footstool under your feet, just as you said you would wait. Yes, Lord, we can say, just as you said we can say, our Master is taking a long time. But you are coming, and you will come at a time we do not expect. Lord Jesus, please help us to be ready. Help us to make progress in living faithful and sensible lives. Help us to not neglect your word, to not neglect prayer, to not neglect one another. Help us to be witnesses in our lives and Lord, when opportunity affords with our words. We pray all these things, Lord. In Jesus' name. 
I just want to ask you guys to take a little bit of time. I don't think we're going to sing, but I, I just feel led to ask you all to just take some time quietly in your heart and ask the Lord, Lord, where are you calling me to be more sensible and more faithful so that I might be ready for you? Where are you calling me? And, and if you don't hear him, just keep praying. Lord, make it clear to me. Make it clear to me how to do that. And he will make it clear to you. He promises wisdom to you if you believe him for it. Just in the quietness of your heart, Lord, where are you calling me to be more sensible and faithful to what you've given me now, Lord?